Let's go inside under my skin. You come around the other way. A dream I have spent. Hello and welcome to another edition of Act in Context podcast. My name is John Delin, and I'm joined as always by the ever wonderful Jennifer Plum. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, John. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Yeah. And today we are going international. Yeah. We have with us um, Dr. Joanne Dahl, who is in Sweden. Hello, Dr. Dahl. Hello, Jen and John. (laughs) What time is it there? It's uh, 4.30. In the afternoon. In the afternoon, yeah. So there's a nine-hour difference. All right. So I've already worked a full day while you just got up. <laughs> yeah, we're we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right, Jen? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So so Dr. Dahl is an associate professor at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. Is that right? Did I pronounce that right? That was good, John. <laughs> and we brought her on today to talk about a very, very important part of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy which is the topic of values. Uh, Joanne is the author of several books, um, and one of them is on values. The book is called The Art and Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Helping Clients Discover, Explore, and Commit to Valued Action Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I almost couldn't say that whole thing without breathing. <laughs> it is a bit of a long title, isn't now, it? <laughs> now, Jen, were you a co-author on that book? I was. Okay, mm-hmm. so we got we kind of have values experts in the house. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> now, th- those aren't the only books that, that Joanne's uh, authored. There's there are a couple other books that I think are are used quite um, considerably around the world. One is called Living Beyond Your Pain: Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain. And then there's a second book on chronic pain called Act for Chronic Pain. Now, what's the difference between those two books, Joanna? Uh, the Act for Chronic Pain is actually a book for therapists and professionals. Okay. And the uh, Living Beyond Your Pain is a self-help book that's been uh, re- in different places in New Zealand and here and in the United States has been put up uh, on Internet, so in different modules. So uh, we hope that it's going to be helpful for people in chronic pain so we'll have to we'll have to put maybe links links up to these books in that resource. And I just called you Joanna. It's Joanne Joandal. Now, mm-hmm. now Joanne, you mentioned also that, that I hear there's a new book coming out. Why don't you tell us quickly about that? Well, actually, it's a um, it's a book about love and intimate relationships uh, from an act and RFT perspective, uh, oh. where we have uh, one of the, one of the authors uh, is Ian Stewart. And another author is Ando Rocks from the Netherlands. Uh, and then we have a third author, Christopher Martel, uh, who heads the American Psychological S- Association for uh, Homosexual, Transsexual, um, Bisexual um, uh, people. So it's it, we have a, a, a good variety of different people. So we hope to uh, be able to help people in establishing intimate relationships by using ACT and RFT. That wow. sounds like a fantastic group of people, Joanne. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Any uh, any sneak sneak idea on on when the book might be available? Long time. Uh, yeah, we have a con- we have contracted it, so it will be. Uh, I think it is a year from September, so we have a little bit to go. It's uh, 
yeah, we hope that it's going to uh, be helpful to people. I mean, intimate relationships and marriage is a very tough uh, area. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the high divorce rates, so we, we hope that this is, will be helpful. Very cool. Very exciting. Well, that's, uh, so that's September 2012, potentially, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. Well, well, today we're here to talk about values. Um, values, you know, there are, you know, values is one of the six core ACT processes as ACT is currently uh, defined. And it, it really kind of represents, I don't know, a third of of ACT if you count sort of the committed action piece being an extension of, of living your values. So ACT is, uh, values is almost a full third of of acceptance and commitment therapy. Is that is that fair to say, Joanne? Yes. Um, I think we, I think for different parts of the world, we, we probably, um, you know, start off act process in a different way. We probably tend to start with values here in Sweden, or I think um, in other places they start with other processes, but um, uh, yeah, yeah just, it's definitely big, important. I'm just going to tell you, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in my second year of, um, of becoming a psychologist and that's my experience so far pushes me to want to start with values as well. So I, that's my anecdotal experience. Well, let's just, let's jump into it then. Why don't we start by a discussion on why values are, are so important and why they make up a third of act? What, what is it about values? Is there, what's the pragmatic reason behind it? Is there any science behind values? Let's just start by talking about the importance of values and why uh, they're so prominent in ACT. Okay. Um, so, Joanne, so one of the things that um, you and I talked about when we started writing the book um, was this idea of um, verbal control. Um, mm -hmm. So is that a place you want to start to talk about, to talk about values, or is there a per more personal place for you um, for why, to, for why to start with values. Yeah, actually, actually, let's back up. What if we started by giving you? I, I should have started here. What if we just gave you a chance to just kind of introduce yourself, tell us a bit about yourself, how you kind of got into therapy and act, and maybe there'll be a values um, component that kind of weaves through there that leads us to to this discussion of why values are important. Would that be okay? That's a good idea, John. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I have um, been working with CBT with, uh, I've never been, I've always been in chronic illness. So chronic pain has been something. And, you know, chronic pain is a very difficult area. And a lot of people who work with chronic pain get burned out. And the CBT model for chronic pain is essentially you're asking people to expose themselves to what hurts. And it's... Um, I think that the reason people get tired and stressed working with chronic pain is that we're, we're essentially pulling them into exposure. And um, it's, um, there are a lot of you know, conflicts with patients. You know, why should, I, why should I expose myself to pain? Of course. And, and I think that when I first, um, I, I forgot how many years ago, but I saw uh, Kelly Wilson came here to our national behavior therapy meeting and he talked about values. And I just thought that is what is missing in the CBT treatment of chronic pain. And, and essentially would be the reason why a person would expose themselves to, to pain. And I think that we didn't have a reason. And, the, and so I think the values piece for me was the why you should expose yourself to any difficulty. 
Mm-hmm. You know, what do you so, so maybe give us an example of of someone who's in chronic pain who for whom their values would help them want to endure through it. Well, I mean, earlier, if, if we say, okay, uh, you know, you're, you're, we say you're avoiding some kind of movement because you're in pain, and we would ask them, okay, show me where your pain is and, and what, what you're avoiding, and they would show us, and, and they'll say, okay, well, let's get started then. Uh, and the person really didn't understand what what is the, uh, you know, for what reason should I do that? And I think when we start with a values compass, uh, we start with the reason why, uh, I, you know, I know that Jen and I talked a lot about um, the difference between symptom reduction, which is the typical classical CBT that we want to help people reduce the symptoms. But here we're trying to help people go into positive reinforcement and go towards, you know, something that is meaningful for them, which we see from the RFT research in pain is that people are able to tolerate uh, pain much better if there's a reason for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so it provides some kind of meaning and purpose in, in uh, the process. Is that right? Yeah. Tell us, just tell us real quickly, just a little bit about yourself, what brought you to psychotherapy and what brought you into the act world. Just, I, it, are you saying it was Kelly, your introduction to Kelly Wilson was your first introduction to act? Is that, is that what you were saying? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That was that was I. Um, I've I've only I've never put my foot outside of CBT. So I'm a, I would call myself a radical behaviorist, and um, I think that I have uh, because I've been working in areas like epilepsy and constipation and areas that other people have not been working in. I've um, I've I've been working strictly with behavior behavior analysis, and and for me that's 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 how I've gone forward because there's no protocols in these areas. And so, um, it, you know, teaching children to control their epilepsy is something, you know, I've been really proud of. But, but on the other hand, um, I also saw that, um, that some people, um, you know, had actually, they found value in having seizures. If you read uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot, uh, a seizure, he talks about his epileptic seizure as contact with God, it, as a experience that he would never want to be without and you know so i think it's also helped me understand um to look at this whole area of symptom reduction in a whole different way uh so it's really expanded my way of looking at people's problems when you look at it from a values perspective hmm. did did you grow up um in sweden or in the u.s no in the u.s so i Grew up in the U.S. and I went to college uh, at a Quaker college, Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. Oh, cool, Quaker! Uh, where they had a Scandinavian program. Yeah, I yeah, and the, they had a program here, and I came here and uh, I met a guy here, and and the, you could go to f- graduate school free in Sweden. So I thought I'll stay. Were, were you <laughs> raised? Were you raised a Quaker? Uh, no, I wasn't. I was yeah, raised in the Baptist Church, but I, uh, I like the Quaker College. I think it's a, if you want to give your child, a, a, I think the best possible gift, send them to a Quaker College. <laughs> what, what was it about the Quaker College you liked? Well, it's um, it, there was this thing about wholeness there, uh, of, of learning about how to be a whole human being, and um, I don't know that. 
you know, you know, a lot of the things we look in and values were certainly there at the Quaker College. It wasn't about achieving. It wasn't about impressing other people or living up to others' expectations, but trying to to develop yourself as a whole human being. Wow. So that that fits really well with. Um sort of how I how I envision sort of you and, and how you've approached this work, Joanne, is that it seems like values is really a wholeness perspective for you. Is that still true? Yeah, I think that's so. Even in the area of obesity that I work the other part of besides pain, um, you know, we have, we work, for example, with uh, o- people who have, have a lifetime obesity and then they um, they, you know, they do this called the sleeve operation. If you know what that is, you take away two thirds of the stomach. And we see that after the sleeve operation, when we meet them as normal weight, we see increased anxiety, increased depress- depression, and we've even had suicidal attempts. And it's, it's as if that, um, you know, when they work so hard and focus on reducing their symptoms like losing weight they forget you know why they wanted to do that uh-huh. it becomes and it's like a soldier going to war and getting so caught up in fighting you, he forgot gets why am i here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the suicide is because think, because they 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 used to have this their life was kind of dominated by um you know whatever the symptoms were being overweight and once they have extra time on their hands they're not quite sure what to do with it is that well, what they say is, um, you know, when when we meet them, they've, they've lost their normal weight. They look at me and say, oh, my God, all my excuses just flew out the window. Mm-hmm. You know, now I have to go out and live. Now mm-hmm. I have to go out. I mean, it's it's much easier to fight with symptoms. And it is actually to go out and get an intimate relationship and get a challenging job and, you know, start living life is much scarier. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, people don't mm-hmm. see that well. They're so distracted with trying to reduce their symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I think, Jen, you and I have wrote quite a lot about that in our book mm-hmm. uh, because our society is so focused on simple symptom reduction that nobody lifts their head up and asks, you know, so what? What, what happens when symptoms are right, reduced? Right, exactly. Then what? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so act, act, uh, values within act provide kind of an organizing force and a sense of meaning and purpose to kind of to kind of provide the motivation, the driving force for living a, a healthy, meaningful life. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and it can be quite painful to start talking about your values. I think uh, when when we actually um, I've worked in uh, just got back from this project in Sierra Leone where we worked with um, uh, former child soldiers that are now uh, working with street children and of course if, if you if you look at if we ask them you know okay what 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 do you want to do in your life and they say well I want to go back home for example to my community well of course that's very painful because of you know the, that they have been soldiers and they have you know you know, killed and slaughtered in in their community of course they're it's they're very scared about being able to go back there mm-hmm. and so when you talk about values it's all often very painful because people become aware of, you know, what they don't have. Sure. Yep. So I think what Steve Hayes says in his book, where there are pain, there are values. And when there are values, there are pain. That's certainly, 
in, in everybody's struggle, if you just flip it, you see there's a value. Like somebody wouldn't have a social phobia unless they valued social relationships. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right, because otherwise the symptoms wouldn't be th- that big of a deal, right? I mean, because you could have anxiety that's not related to other people. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Fascinating. Okay, so real quick, before we dive into values, this has been wonderful. It, Janet, is there, is, or, or um, Joanne, is there any way that, that science can inform us on values? Have, have there been any studies done on values that, that kind of provide the basis for, uh, for kind of what we're going to talk about in terms of uh, its clinical use? Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually quite a bit of data, but perhaps not as much as we would like. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's several different levels that we can look at data. Um, and maybe, Joanne, you have some studies that I, I don't know about yet, so, so feel free to chime in. But, um, you know, when we look at the, the model, something that people have done throughout the ACT work is, is take sort of a component and do like a laboratory study to mm-hmm. see if we can identify sort of what are, the, what are the pieces that play in the ACT model. Like what are the the features of the ACT model that might be useful and can we look at them at an individual level or, you know, at, at you know, values plus, say, acceptance or something like that. Um, and Joanne, you mentioned before the, um, the pain tolerance studies. So there have been a couple laboratory studies where they've done what's called a cold presser task where mm. people put their hand in, in really cold ice water mm. for, um, for as long as they can. And what they've found is that both acceptance as a rationale for why you would keep your hand in the cold water mm. and then adding values to, to like a brief intervention. So someone would come into the lab and they'd sit down and then they, the experimenter would come in and say, you know, imagine, you know, you've had a loved one who fell in the water. That's one way they've done it. There've been others. Um, and, and, or try to elicit the sense of purpose for why you would keep your hand in the water and that you know and that has been done separate from acceptance or adding to acceptance of like um, can you make space for that sensation um, it's just a sensation that kind of comes and goes is not permanent and it matters um, often that keeps helps people keep their hand in water longer now ice water isn't meaningful right in and of itself it's not a behavior we would care about like sticking your hand in ice water but we can show that um, adding values can sort of increase people's willingness to be in touch with really uncomfortable sensations. So that's one way that people have shown that values can be really important. Because as Joanne just mentioned, there's a lot of pain out there. Um, and so, so we can look to laboratory studies to show that values are an important component to people just living their lives more meaningfully and um, being willing to have more have discomfort in their lives, but not for no purpose. There's an actual purpose to it, that there's something that um, they might find reinforcing in in having discomfort be present in their lives. Not because discomfort is something we want, but just because it's, it sort of comes along for the ride in living our lives meaningfully. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, good that you brought that up. Jen, uh, another study that we did in South Africa, we went to um, a total institution for people with epilepsy. And uh, we were there uh, first and did an act treatment. And then we went back after six months and after 12 months. And um, these people had severe epilepsy. And we 
we, we did these um, process measures. And what we saw is that um, uh, when, when people actually t- started taking steps in their value directions, then after that, that mediated uh, lower seizures. Mm-hmm. So, and what they said when we asked them, they said, well, we don't have time. We don't have time to have any more seizures. Because <laughs> yeah. they're filling it up with things they care about, right? <laughs> Exactly. Of course, we knew that from another study uh, in uh, Norway, that the more active a person is, the less uh, paroxysmal activity or epileptogenic activity. But I didn't know, we didn't know, you know, about the value direction at that time. So when we started in in Africa with the value direction, and you know, if you're in a total institution, you don't have a whole lot of options. But um, people were very creative. So it's like that once they got in contact with what they wanted, then they solved the problem how to get there. And I think earlier in CBT, we would have, you know, tried to help them maybe do that. But it's like if you if they just get in contact with what they want, then it seems uh, that mediates other other things. But yeah, anyway, in that study, it did. Yeah. Now, did that also? Um, am I misremembering? Did that also mediate um, both the outcome in epilepsy, but also? Um, Life satisfaction, am I, am I right yep. on that? Yep. Yeah. It's yep. So, so it's kind of interesting. You see this link between doing things you care about and feeling more satisfied. And it sounds like a, an obvious uh, relationship, um, but it's kind of neat to see it played out in the data because so often we don't, have, we don't have data that say the things that we think might, might be commonsensically true. So very cool. Yeah. And actually, um, if you look at that process, First, the life quality went down. So immediately, mm. you see that you know, when when you work with values, this often happens is that people feel very unsatisfied because you're reminded them of what they don't what they don't have. Yeah. And, and then after when they started then experimenting and working towards it, then the life quality goes up after six months. And I think that's quite common. Well, Joanne, would you say that part of the process? Of, of sort of working towards the values is maybe uh, using some of the other processes in the ACT model? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so using maybe acceptance, diffusion, some self-as-context work, that sort of observer perspective um, to help people sort of deal with the difficulty that might come up or the, the sadness that might come up or the confusion or the, the fear of being hurt or the fear of failure or whatever um, might show up to sort of get to the place where, where suddenly living values is a little bit um, more clear, a little bit easier when you get yeah. a little distance from the difficulties of it. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're actually um, starting a book right now on obesity. And you can see that our society confuses us because the advertisements about self-indulgence, for example, um, come very, very close to what looks like values. You know, the L'Oreal, because you're worth it. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the Ben & Jerry's, you know, chocolate therapy ice cream. It, <laughs> it, somehow, it, it, it come, those people make advertisements are very good at, you know, making things look like a value. Hmm. And so when you come, we're trying to distinguish between self-indulgence and self-esteem and, and self-compassion, what that means. You know, this, is, this sounds like a perfect opportunity to kind of tie in what, what the ACT sort of take on values is versus some of these misconceptions that you just mentioned that are sort of prevalent in society. Is that a good? Yeah. And, and let me, if I can, I was going to set it up this way. Like, you know, I grew up in a certain religious tradition and for me, you know, when I think of values, I think of like family values, like, 
we don't cheat on our spouse. We, you know, in, in, in the LDS, you know, religion, we don't drink alcohol and we don't have premarital sex and we, you know, go to church every Sunday. And, you know, if you do those types of things and pray, then you have values. Um, mm. So that's kind of, you know, I always think about values as living kind of a moral life as a religion would define it. And that's probably what maybe a good chunk of the general lay audience might think of when they think of values, uh, not the particular ones that I, that I mentioned, but just the sense of not violating commandments or kind of moral laws. Is that, uh, so tell us how, how acts approach to values is different. What, what are values from an act perspective? Well, um, Joanne, do you want me to, to yeah. provide the, the definition that we put in yeah. our book? Because um, I, I have the book in front of me. Uh, but um, so um, that is a common misconception that it's, it's sort of that, va- that moral perspective. But um, from an act perspective, and this definition is a little bit long, but it's freely chosen, verbally constructed consequences of ongoing, dynamic, evolving patterns of activity which establish predominant reinforcers for that activity that are intrinsic in engagement in the valued behavior pattern itself. Holy moly. I know. That's a lot, right? We're going to have to break that down. Yeah, we will. But um, but, <laughs> but essentially, um, Joanne, if you had one sort of brief phrase that would sort of encompass that, what would you say? Like if you were talking to a client and they said, well, what are this, what is this values thing? What would you say? Yeah, how do you, ex- sort of how do you explain values? Down? Yeah, how do you explain values to a client? I I would say that it comes down to um, uh, a sense of knowing what is good for you in the long run, what is good and healthy for you in the long run. Nice. So so right. So some of the behavioral language we just threw threw in there about this long thing, um, Joanne's the your nice definition there of what's good for you in the long run is this idea of this long-term behavior pattern of doing things that matter to you um, and that is good for you. What do you mean by good for you in the long run? Like, is that like good for you like the doctor tells it's good for you or is that a different kind of good for you? Well, what it, what is healthy for you in the long run? This is, I mean, for, I mostly work with women and women have this tendency to uh, put themselves in the second room and think of, okay, you know, you know, when what we call in, in act for appliance, what do other people think uh, in obesity? It's like, you know, to, to, to look good or to, you know, to, and all of these things are confusing. Mm-hmm. So if you really stop and think, and I, and I'll, I can do an exercise with you to maybe explain this. Sure. Is this a good That'd time? Be great. To- yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay. So uh, if you just close your eyes a minute, and I, if you're driving a car, you should probably not close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you can close your eyes, um, and I want you just to, um, you know, get into contact uh, with your breathing and. I want you to imagine yourself in an activity, an activity that you may don't, maybe you don't do it today or maybe you have done it, but this activity is something that you do for yourself. Uh, it may lead to restoration, this activity, or helping you become stronger, but in this activity, it's not you and the activity, but you become the activity. There's no time and space 
This is something that you do for yourself. And when you have this activity, just feel what that feels like in your body as you see yourself doing this for yourself. Leading you to a stronger, healthier person. Okay, now I want you to stay there and just, if you can, you could just turn to the side and imagine that somebody's standing over you. Same activity, but now someone's standing over you and expecting you to perform that activity. Now there's an expectation. And I want you to feel how that feels. Same activity different function. Okay, can you, did you feel the difference? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this would be the difference, what we would call the difference between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Okay, and why, where, why would you say that, where, where's the negative reinforcement here? Well, because if you're doing it to, to, um, to uh, um, uh, get, get rid of someone else's, uh, get, uh, to try to relieve yourself of the anxiety of performance, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe someone might work harder when others are watching mm-hmm. uh, to, mm-hmm. to sort of perform, to look good, to... Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay. So the negative reinforcement would be um, trying to reduce um, some sort of aversive state by doing something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, so in other words, in this one, you're trying to identify the difference between doing it for for yourself and doing it for someone else. That's right, and that's how we that's how we start all of our projects. That we we have to we want a person to be able to discriminate that difference mm-hmm. before we go into other values. Okay. Yeah. Now so that. Now I'm confused, Joanne. So, so one thing you mentioned um, before is that you're working on this book about love and intimacy. So that's clearly something that matters to you. How do you how do you talk to clients about doing it for yourself, but that there are other meaningful people in their lives? Where does how does that fit together? That's interesting because I think a lot of people think that values can be in conflict. But I think if 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 you always make take the stance of you're doing this for yourself in the long run then that that will also be good for other people. And what, what's confusing there is people can think that, you know, if, you know, you get, am I being egoistic? Am I being narcissistic? Mm-hmm. But or self-centered or, yeah. Self-centered. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think that all of those things are not the long run. I think that's, you know, if you're egoistic, if you're doing something that's going to um, harm another person, that's not good for you and it's not good for, you know, anybody else. Mm-hmm. But if I take care of myself, I also will be good for other people. And this is, you know, like on the airplane when the stewardess says, put on your oxygen mask first before you put it on the child. Uh-huh. It's this thing. It's, so it, you need to be, first of all, taking care of yourself and then you can take care of others. So it would be the root of compassion is self-compassion. Hmm. So would you say that it's, it's really hard to be compassionate towards others if you are not compassionate towards yourself? That's right. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's where love starts, and that's what our book is about, is, is love for others starts with love for yourself. Mm. And uh, 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's really helpful because, you know, this idea, um, just going back to that exercise of, of that discriminating the different functions that the same behavior can be about um, is really interesting and one that I don't, I don't know if that's in like the main culture, you know, this idea of I could go to the gym because I want to take care of myself and my health or I could do it because I'm afraid my husband will think I look bad, you know, Um, you you know, there's a very subtle difference there and, um, and I just wonder sort of, you know, how we sort of break out of this pattern. How do we even identify what our behavior is under the control of? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's it's interesting because that's how we get into trouble too. When we think that, that the uh, reinforcement is in the activity when it is in our, our intention. So what we know from behavioral research in obesity. So if, if for example, if, if we have, um, uh, we, we could put three balls on the floor for, you know, having a group with, uh, people with obesity and say, okay, why do you want to lose weight? And if they, you know, if they say, well, I want to look good. Okay. That goes in what we call the, yeah, the, we actually call it achieving Alice um, bowl. Mm. I want to avoid diabetes. That, that it would be the runaway Ronnie or negative reinforcement bowl. I want to do this for myself. And what, what we know is that it's when people actually are in contact and doing things for themselves, then we have a longer term, we can maintain the behavior change. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other two are much shorter in the, mm-hmm. uh, Right, because I think, you know, my experience is that if I go to the gym because I'm afraid other people will think I look bad, that's only enough to get me to the gym. But man, my experience at the gym is really painful. (laughs) I hate being there. It stinks. I don't want to go back. (laughs) All I can think of is how much I don't want to be there. (laughs) Yeah. And actually things that, I mean, an activity can be very reinforcing, but you can contaminate it if you force yourself to do it. Mm-hmm. So if, if you can be mindful in the activity and actually harvest the, the reinforcement, for example, feel how I'm stretching and how my blood is circulating here, mm-hmm. uh, I can give uh, let myself um, have that reinforcement. I can find the value in it. But if I contaminate it by forcing myself, it, uh, this is on my list of things I have to do to please mm-hmm. other people. I'm actually contaminating an activity that could give me value. Hmm. Interesting. So that's kind of that intrinsic um Intrin- that the reinforcers for the activity that are intrinsic engagement in the value behavior pattern itself, that chunk of the, the long, the long definition is right there. That intrinsic sense of, of uh, reinforcement is in the activity um, because it's your intention to do that as, as a way of doing something that matters to you. Yeah. And anything can be misused. I mean, you could go to yoga you know, to, uh, to look good. I mean, it, so, I mean, it, yeah, you, you really has to, your intention is extremely important. Why do you do things? So I think when we work with values, we just try to help people to become aware of why do I do this activity and I need to somehow land and I do it for me, do it for my long-term. Yeah. Well, Joanne, could you speak a little bit about, um, you know, when, you know, talking about this idea of, of self-compassion and doing it for the self, a couple different thoughts come up for me. You know, one is, um, how is that different from the sort of self-esteem idea that we need to feel good about ourselves in order to be successful human beings? Well, that's what's interesting in, in, in the RFT research is, is that, you know, the, because of language and, and because of this negative bias that we have, uh, we we always will have negative thoughts about ourselves. So, so can we speak a little bit about what that negative bias might look like in terms of the ACT model? Can, can you just take a couple of minutes to, to 
to sort of walk our listeners through what kind of biases show up for people? Well, I mean, if we look at um, uh, brain research, we have about five times more negative thoughts than positive thoughts. Five and times? That, yeah, and that's not going to change. So even if you, you know, so if you say, uh, you look at yourself in the mirror and think you're fat. Okay, so so then you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help my, you know, these thoughts by losing weight. Well, even if you lose weight, you're still going to have, you're still going to look in your mirror and think you're fat. It's, yeah. it's, it's like those these evaluative thoughts about ourselves, which they have this negative bias, don't change even when you reduce the symptom. And I think people are often disappointed about that. That mm, you know, I've they want those thoughts to go away. They want them to go away. And why wouldn't you? Because they're they're not fun to have. But so how does how does how does from an act perspective, how do we deal with those? Well, uh, we deal through acceptance. So the difference between co- cognitive therapy and, and ACT is that we don't try to change those thoughts. We try to find you know, an acceptance by opening up and absorbing, <laughs> absorbing and seeing thoughts for what they are. And really thoughts are just um, verbal constructs of interpretations of different experiences that I've had and they're mine. And I notice often when I work with people, you know, which I, you know, try to see how, how are we going to relate to these thoughts? And people will, um, you know, they would, they'll just ignore them or, you know, they'll disassociate from mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. instead of um, seeing in a compassionate, loving kindness way. These are my thoughts because they're re- representative of experience I've had and they're part of me. And I can have a thought I'm fat and I can go swimming with that thought uh-huh. <laughs> or I can intimate relationship together with a thought I'm fat and unacceptable rather than trying to think I'm going to, you know, first do that. And then I'm going to have the intimate relationship or I'm going to get rid of the pain and then I'm going to work. So it's a, uh, it's finding compassion uh, for these thoughts that, you know, like high thought, high anxiety. I see you're an old friend of mine um, mm. and making space and going on. So it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful way to move forward. Mm. I, I like the way you just spoke about that, about this idea that, you know, these things are going to be here with us, that, that brain research says we're just likely to have these kinds of thinking patterns, but that they don't have to, sounds like you're saying they don't have to control our behavior. They don't have to tell us what we can and can't do. That you can go swimming with the thought that I'm fat, or you can um, do things that matter to you, even That's with these thoughts that are present. So, so from sort of a behavioral perspective, it sounds like what ACT is doing is undermining a particular kind of verbal control of this idea that thoughts um, dictate rules that are po- about what's possible for us as human beings. And we're using a different kind of verbal control, meaning that values are statements about what we care about that organize our behavior. And that's more of a chosen thing that we choose the kind of verbal statements that we want to we want to choose to have organize our behavior from a mm-hmm. much more repetitive place a much more place of of wanting to engage in things that matter to us rather than to avoid feeling a certain way or avoid um a certain um you know a, a feared outcome or something yeah that's right that's it's it's always it's like an uh, overarching uh consistency for example if you know two people are fighting about children or getting divorced oh okay what is the overarching value here and so okay it's mm. what what's best for the kids and if if you get into contact with 
what's best for the kids, then the fighting uh, subsides in another way, you know, then rather than who's right or wrong here and who's going to get more money becomes uh, less in, in this o- overarching value. So it's, um, mm-hmm. I think this consistency of, um, you know, like you said, Jen, choosing rather than, than uh, trying to get rid of seems to have a whole different effect on our behavior. I mean, it's not easy to choose cancer if you have cancer, but, mm-hmm. but if you can choose it, you have access to your resources and you can reinforce your immune system. But if you're in resistance, you know, this is unfair, this shouldn't have happened to me, you're reducing your resources. Hmm. So, so having a little bit of practice of accepting sort of what is in order to to live more meaningfully is that is that kind of what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. If you, I mean, if you have, if you're dying, and you, um, for example, with cancer, uh, choosing, for example, what's important here could be um, the quality of my relationships is very important. My the last you know time I have to live here, and I might choose to have less pain medication. Uh, because I want to, I want to have that quality in relationships mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is more important to me than than getting rid of the pain. Mm-hmm. So having those, you know, actually making an active choice from your values rather than uh, symptom reduction, mm-hmm. you know, seems to be valuable to people. So, so, so when you are. Um, when you're introducing values with the client, uh, you you take them through that exercise. You explain. Um, is there is there a point where you help help sort of ex- explicitly describe what what values are and what they aren't, and how do you what what are the precursors to whatever exercises you might do to help them kind of start identifying the values? How, how do you you, you explained values as being, as I remember, uh, r- remind us again the one-sentence description that you, that you made of values. Joanne? Um, I, I, uh, about what is good for you in the long run. Yeah. So, so how, do you, how do you take that one step further? Um, it, how do you set up values with a client in a way to where you can then begin having them start to, to define what they are? So what's the next step, I guess, in well, – we if we work pretty radically here um because uh, i'm a, i mean i only work in clinical research so we try to uh have sessions as sh- short as possible so we often have a one session treatment um this is what also we've done in other countries and i also work with physical metaphors mm. um and so actually we have no chairs in the room uh we we set up a lifeline on the floor so as they come in uh, we put them straight, you know, on the lifeline, and the lifeline is actually um, a metaphor for being present in life. And so, when this exercise we just did, uh, I would ask them. So the direction here would be uh, talking about self-compassion. So we're talking about what is when steps you take will have to do with what's good for you in the long run, what's healthy for you in the long run, and so that we point them in that direction. And then we would turn them off the line when it has to do with what's called pliance and act with uh, doing things for other people. Then you go off the line. So we have onliners values offline would be activities done in the service of symptom reduction or trying to fulfill somebody else's expectations. 
And then, and then we walk them down this line where they show us behavior samples of experiential avoidance. So where, where, you, um, where you actually value reducing what you felt rather than this value direction. So, so you have a physical line in the therapy room? Yep, yep. To, to describe that because I, I, I I've never seen this. I don't understand what you mean exactly. Well, well uh, for example, at the surgery department, when we, you know, when we have patients after surgery, they come in, and, and, and so the room, we have a line on the floor, and um, so as soon as they come in the door, they stand on the line, so they never get to sit down. So, and, for the whole hour? Yeah. Wow. And maybe at the, at the end, but, but you know, I, I, you know, I work at the psychology department, and I, I watch a lot of students do this, and I've found that if they sit down to start with, the whole thing takes much longer. And often people get more hesitant, but if they start standing up, it, and I think that, you know, working in other countries like um, working in Australia with the Aborigines or, you know, working um, in this project in Sierra Leone, people who are moving, it, it's much easier for them somehow to, uh, you know, get in contact with their values. Like in the Aboriginal population talked about the song line, you know, being in contact with their ancestors. So there a lot of different ways you could do this, but, the point is that, you know, that they should be able to feel physically what it means to be in a value direction rather than just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to establish on the line. So you would notice if you went off it. For example, if you said, like you said, Jen, Jen if you were going to gym for you and then you notice that you're doing it for some other reason, that you should feel yourself doing that in your body. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's subtle. I mean, it takes practice to notice that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not, you know, I don't think that it's easy to notice that without practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's what we try to practice because the thought is that when they leave your room, that they would have a, like a values compass within themselves so that they would, as they take steps, they would notice it. Their body would tell them, oh, this doesn't, this feels like you're, this feels like something else here. Mm-hmm. You're, that I'm trying to squish a fear. Or I'm trying to look good here rather than a that I'm really in contact with why I'm doing this for myself. So I love the idea of, of this lifeline. And, um, you know, if I'm thinking towards some of these uh, older ACT protocols that are out there that don't start with values, yeah. what are some ways that you would suggest for folks who are saying, you know, I have this protocol that I'm going to do because I'm in a setting where that's sort of what we do, or I'm just more comfortable with that for right now. How can I, how can I, given that I want to work within this sort of traditional start with, you know, creative hopelessness and walk through the different processes of the model, what ways can I bring in values early on? Um, What would you suggest that people do if they're not, they're not willing or able or not sure how they might do a lifeline? What are some other little ways you can start bringing in values right away? Oh, there's, I mean, just that example that we did, I think, I think for sure a lifeline is pretty complicated, but I think, um, I think if you do creative hopelessness, it's just that you need a calibrating instrument. How would you know, you know, that it's hopeless if you, you know, if you just, as soon as somebody's struggling with anything, if you just flip it, you know, okay, if somebody says, I want to, you know, I want to get rid of my anxiety, if you just flip it, you know, um, why, if that was all solved? What would it, what would it give you? What you know? Mm. So what would what would having your anxiety under control, or your depression, or uh, your your trauma history, or the reactions you've had to your trauma, um, if those things were under control, what would you 
be doing? Is that sort of what you were yeah. going Yeah, how would your life mm-hmm. be different? If, if, if you could just, you know, separate that a minute and say, say that was all solved, um, what difference would it make? Mm-hmm. You know, often you can say, for example, there is no value in losing weight. I mean, the, the, it's not that you want it on your gravestone. Um, you know, Sarah, she lost those five pounds at the end of her life. <laughs> it's like, it's, there, there is no value. It only has a value um, in, in that it helps you to live in some way that you want to live. And in the same way, pain, I mean, if, if you just want to get rid of your pain, you, you could, you know, go down and buy a fifth of liquor and be intoxicated all the time. No problem. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it, the question is, what do you want to do if those things are under control? Mm-hmm. And and what about, you know, like when people come in and say, gosh, you know, I'm so anxious that I'm not able to go out and, and um, deal with people. Yeah. And then you could say, okay, so um, if that anxiety was gone, what, what do you want to, what, how would things be different? So I'm curious. I want to hear about, um, about what, what you want to do. And I think that, that just turns things around. And you can see in their bodies that there's a huge difference between trying to get rid of or that you see the sparkle in their eye and they say, yeah, I would like to do this and this. And, and, and you just, they look different and, and you can feel empathy for them in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. Because I want the same things, I you know, and and it's very tiring. I mean, I th- so I think that I would say that, you know, one of the things about values is if you can uh, get your, you know, your lust back of being a therapist because it's much easier, it's much more fun. Hmm. To be working for things that are meaningful, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to, to yeah. Of the bit of things. I mean, I think most mostly my, you know, 35 years of experience of being a psychologist, most of the things people come to a psychologist with are not solvable. Hmm. They're, you know, trying to get rid of negative thoughts or anxiety or pain. And, and it's very tiring to, you know, to work with that rather than helping them see, uh, uh, you know, I want, I'm, I'm curious about what, what you would want and how I could help you there. It's just much more fun. So then from that place, would you take, once you sort of say, what would you want to be about if that wasn't a problem for you, but we're still back in this place where someone's coming into therapy early, they've had maybe one session, and they're still in this place of, well, I can't do that because I have all these barriers. How would you bring values work in from there in terms of the practice of living consistent with values? Well, if, I mean, all those barriers can be, uh, what we when we work with physical metaphors, we personify and objectify those those barriers and, and play with them. And I think when people are a little playful and, um, of course, you know, you can, on the lifeline, you can play those different barriers and try to bully the person and, and see if they can stand with self-fidelity for themselves mm-hmm. and how, see how that feels, you know, with standing tall and persistent in the face of difficulties. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, in Sierra Leone, those uh, uh, guys who had been former soldiers, you know, about 20 20 years of age, uh, they were walking the line towards going back to their community. And then they had the other former soldiers who were trying to push them off, saying, you know, don't go there. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be refused and mm-hmm. and so it was, you know, practicing how do you stand tall for yourself and how, how would you deal with these? And so, you know, we deal with acceptance by putting their arms around them and validating, yeah, these things happened and we're going to go together forward. Right. 
Well, and I think you bring up a really important point here is that, you know, the reality of, of this situation with these child soldiers may be that they may not actually be embraced in their community that they came from. Yep. So the outcome of living consistent with values is never assured. No, that's right. So, so how, so it sounds like that there's this piece of something organizing our behavior no matter what the consequences are. That's right. That's right. And how, how do you help people stay connected to what matters even when, you know, the outside world is making it harder to continue to do those things? You know, like that child soldier who is seeking connection with others and reconnection with people he loved, but he's also done these things that makes it hard for the community to support that. You know, and, and, and that's akin to someone who maybe has been abusing substances for a really long time and maybe burnt some bridges with some family members through mm -hmm. that process, but then gets sober and, and, and really wants to reconnect. But maybe the people in the family are not willing to do that that's or maybe true. not quite in the timeline the person would want. So how, how can values show up for those people? How can you help people connect to values there? Yeah, I mean, that's that's so true that that i mean you're looking to reinforce yourself so this concept of self fidelity or self compassion that has to do with you're reinforcing yourself so mm -hmm. that um, i have to find my own meaning in in what i do and mm -hmm. rather than looking as an external source so then which would be uh, you know the outcome or others approval or you know a certain i have to if i stand up for myself with myself um, that is all I can do. That is all I can. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and then I, can, I have no control of other people's sure, reactions. Sure. I have no control, but I have, I have full control over how I relate to what goes on in me. Mm -hmm. And that's all really we can do. Now, would you, so, so it sounds like, you know, it's this idea of, of standing with yourself and, and wanting to live from a place of what matters. But, you know, when you're working with someone who, let's say that their biggest issue is um, relationship difficulties, how they relate to other people in their lives. Um, mm. You know, I could be, let me just give an example. Let's say someone that I'm close with, say a friend or, or something, does something that I find hurtful. Mm -hmm. I might find it reinforcing in the moment to, to snap at them or yell at them because mm -hmm. they've hurt me. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean or is there something different? How does that relate to how we actually behave towards other people? Well, if if you if you see yourself as um, that, I mean, if your value is to act in a loving manner, and so if when when someone insults you, you actually have control over the function of that. Um, Victor Frankl has a lot of these examples in the concentration camp where where the SS soldiers uh, give him these terrible jobs and threaten him, give him a you know, threaten his life. And he redoes it and said, this is my job and I will do my best in my job. And those people who had, you know, he says, who are connected in that way survived. Whereas those who, who saw this is, um, I'm, an, I'm a victim, did not survive. And I think hmm. the point is that I, I have the power over uh, the function of, so, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt says, no one can insult you without your permission. <laughs> so you, you decide over the function. So you can never control other people, but you can control the, what function it has with you. And, and that means you can choose to act in a loving manner 
regardless of other people's behavior. Mm. But so, so acting in a loving manner, regardless of other people's behavior, um, if that was what sort of was meaningful for you, that doesn't mean that it's okay for people to treat you poorly, though, right? That's not excusing other people's behavior. Well, I mean, I really just have no control other, over other people's behavior. Mm-hmm. And so I can, if, if I don't like the situation I'm in, I can choose to, to change my situation, but I can never control other people's behavior. I mean, sure. and I think that's something that, you know, it's fun for us psychologists is we, uh, which is difficult in ACT, we're sitting here as behavior therapists and, uh, you know, this is what we're helping people change their behavior and we're telling them, uh, that you're perfectly acceptable the way you are. And this, mm-hmm. is, this is a paradox, for example, with obesity. The platform of, of accepting your weight is the best chance for you to change your behavior to lose weight. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 If, I, if I'm thinking that, if I'm starting off thinking that I'm unacceptable, I, I'm going to have a harder time to lose weight than if I start off with, that I am acceptable the way I am. And that it's at a deeper level than, than believing it, than saying like, that is true. That is, it's more, it's more like not buying into the thoughts that I'm unacceptable. Right. Coming from a stance of what if I'm a human being who has struggles just like everyone else and I can, I can make changes because they mean they're meaningful to me. So it's sort of self-acceptance from a different place than, you know, that positive thinking idea of, I just have to think I'm acceptable, right? Yeah. yeah. And also trying to, that I'm trying to lose weight to make myself acceptable rather than mm-hmm. I want to lose weight because I want to do, maybe it makes it easier for me to do what I want to do, mm-hmm. but not to make myself acceptable because I, all of us, uh, because of this negative bias, we all have, this, as you say, a human suffering of feeling inadequate and feeling mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. That's that's not going to be influenced by mm-hmm this form. John, it sounds like you were about to say something. I was just going to bring out kind of the skeptical part of me and, and ask if, if there are ever clients that, that kind of say, well, this just sounds kind of hippie, new agey, um, you know, start from a place of love and self-acceptance and, and not a place of wanting to change for other people's values. But, but in reality, uh, you know, we live in the real world. What, what do you do? What do you do if somebody comes to you with some skepticism that that the nuances of of acting from a place of values versus for other more uh, uh, relational motives um, really will make a difference? Do you ever have people that are skeptical about the impact or the potential impact of of this, what might seem to some to be a subtle shift in how you think and look at things. And if you do have people who are kind of skeptical, do you have any stories about seeing them get it over time or understand it better over time? Uh, Does that ever happen in your practice, Joanne? Well, I I think that most people, and I think that, Jen, we wrote about this quite a lot in our book, um, they come and people come and want to be, want to fix themselves. And I think that since we are selected problem solvers, most people come and think that, you know, I'm going to fix myself often to make themselves feel, you know, better about themselves or better for somebody else. And of course, if we buy into that, which, you know, we tend to do with 
with classical CBT, we try to, you know, help people, you know, get better self-confidence or fix themselves. I think we're barking up the wrong tree with them. And I think if, if, you, if you just sit quietly with them often and, and um, okay, so if, if, if you could do that, um, what difference would it make? And I think people, um, you know, it's, you're breaking culture here because our culture has, has taught us that um, somehow we're in a symptom reduction culture. And, and of course, I think people are going to come exactly as you say, John, they're going to come and think that, okay, I'm coming to a psychologist to fix myself. And if you don't buy into that, of course, a lot of people do react. And, um, but I think if, if it's really important to be, um, to have um, a therapeutic relationship where you create a space um, that's, that says, you know, that you are a perfect and competent human being and, um, uh, I want to know what what you want, what what you want in your life. And I think people mostly are taken back, and they're um, and they see that you know what we don't want is them to use act as another way to fix themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want the, we want this to be something different. And, is, uh, so, if it's not fixing yourself, what is it? It's it's looking, let's say, raising your head and looking beyond the fixing and think, what is all this fixing about? Where do you want? Where do you want to go? And and often it's um, uh, it's it's often quite astounding. And since we have very short term therapy, we we want to create a discrepancy in the same way as motivational interviewing does, um, a discrepancy between uh, how you see yourself and how you're actually acting, and. And once people see that, okay, I, I see myself as a loving person, but I'm, you know, acting in another way. And, you know, the, this somehow helps us um, bring these together. It's a, a, a good motivator for behavior change. As soon as I can see that um, I have these values, but I'm not acting accordingly to them. For example, um, you know, people who are um, often women act in quite self-destructive manners who are trying to lose weight. And, and they know that this is not, this is not a, a good way to treat themselves. They know that often women are very, very good caretakers for other people, but they're very bad in taking care of themselves. And when they see that, I think they, you know, these exercises are meant to show that discrepancy. And when it becomes apparent, it's quite touching People understand that very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's not really been my experience that people thought it was new age. I think that um, often people welcome a change from what they've already done. Yeah. I, I think too, John, um, some of my experience has been that, um, you know, Joanne and I have talked a lot about this work. And, and one thing I notice is, yeah, sometimes people see it as new age or whatever, but I think underneath that is they're just not really sure what what it is that they care about. Mm. And I think that that comes, I'm not saying that's everybody who might have, might be skeptical of this work, but I think a big chunk of that is that we live in a culture, particularly Western society, that doesn't teach kids to identify these sort of overarching um organizing behavior patterns like what is it that I care about what can I be about in this world that's meaningful to me as a human being that will bring me vitality um to throw to you know I I like using the word vitality for people because you know living vitally if you think about what it is that's most vital for you 
um, you know, for me, it's not the things necessarily that are easy, you know, that living vitally can often be hard, quote unquote, on paper, you know, like it's something, you know, like running is hard, like it hurts, it's difficult to like maintain that behavior. But it's something that I find vital or, you know, being in relationships with other people, they have a lot of meaning and purpose. And I feel, um, I feel good in them. But they're also difficult and they're risky because I can be hurt very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this idea of vitality is not one that I think is, is widely in the culture. Um, you know, you, you see people who are, you know, drinking to, to feel cool or, you know, dress this way and you'll, you'll be, you'll, you'll look the part and people will treat you the way you want to be treated. And, um, you know, you buy this, you do this, you, you live for immediate gratification or you live a moral life based on what people tell you to do. But no one has sat down and said, what is it that's vital for you? Mm-hmm. and helped people sort of abstract the value inside doing those things. So, so for me, maybe exercise would be about um, wanting, about caring about my health or a, a form of self-compassion. Um, mm-hmm. So when people come in and say, that sounds really hippie or, or whatever, or I don't really get it, or that just sounds too simple, I think it's because we don't cultivate a sense of values in our society mm-hmm. as easily as maybe other, other societies do. And then even inside that, you know, if someone comes in with, um, say, religious values that seem to be fairly restrictive or that have a certain, you know, set of parameters around it, like you, your value is about sort of um, being connected to your family or something, that that's something that a person says, no, I really care about that because I've been taught that, that's right, I know that's right. I would still work with that person and say, okay, well, what, what's important for you inside that, like, yeah, you could, I'm going to take for granted that that's something you want to work for because that's what you've been taught and you come in saying that that's important to you. I'm not going to take that away and say you have to be self-centered, but what is important to you inside that? Like, a caring in here that you, you want to be compassionate towards others and can you find reinforcement in doing that if that's important to you? So helping people identify what matters to them through what they're already doing in, in areas that they're successful is one way to sort of do that values clarification process mm-hmm. um, and helping people sort of say, you're probably already doing things that you value, but let's look at them. Mm-hmm. How can we extend that to other areas of your life where maybe you're, you're not doing as well? Maybe there are areas you're coming in for help with. Let's look at what you do know that you care about and see if we can find ways that there may be areas you're not living consistent with what you might care about that maybe we can work on here. So, so I don't think it's about, um, you know, hippie or that sounds too easy or, you know, pop psychology, pop psychology. Exactly. It's not about thinking or feeling like I'm good. I'm an okay person. It's, it's really getting down to that level of, um, you know, the, the bottom line is we're human beings that, um, you know, reinforcement is powerful. That's going to be what, maintains our behavior is when we find it reinforcing, we will continue to do it. Um, and that can be negatively reinforcing to remove a stimulus or it can be positively reinforcing. But we hope we take the stance that positive reinforcement is a better, um, a better way of maintaining behavior patterns over the long term, and that those those are probably more sustaining. Right. Jen, I just want to add something to you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, something that you and I have uh, talked about a lot in the book, and I that I think it's um, something that's pretty new, and that's uh, looking at uh, function over form. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
a lot, our society often looks at form. For example, if you want to say, you know, think about uh, family, you might, I, I've been a foreigner here in this country and I have three small, I had, you know, three small children and I'd had, you know, my mother died early and I wanted a grandmother that, so, you know, the, the function of a grandmother, you know, has a function like giving perspective and, you know, a lot of function for grandparents. Well, I don't have one. And if I were to, you know, say, okay, well, you know, then I can't have that because I don't have a grandmother that would be looking at the form, but I, but I actually advertised for a grandmother and got a grandmother. You know, so if, if, and which filled the function that I needed, <laughs> if you look, if, I mean, this is something you and I brought up a lot is if you look beyond the form of something and, and, and so a value is not in the form, it's in the function. So you need to find it. You need to, if you, you know, if you, if you say I, friends are important to me, but I don't have any because I'm a foreigner here, then you, you lost the, the point is that you need to create it. Mm-hmm. You, right. So, so the, yeah, so just to add to that, um, the idea that values are present even if um, it, it's sort of physically impossible in the moment to, to sort of have the thing that people might look to to say you care about that. Yeah. In other words, like, I can't produce a friend, but I can care about friendship. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's, it's a going past the form, and, and that's why fusion and diffusion is helpful because um, you, if you say, well, I would if that was possible, but to go beyond that. And there's a function that's consistent over the form. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I really tried to go, go into that in the book. So I think if, if people have problems with values, I think our book is, is, is helpful in that way. And what, are some, what are some examples of form versus function? Just so people can kind of really understand what you mean. Well, a grandmother well, one is a great one too. You know, yeah. like most people think your grandmother is a relative, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah. you were looking for certain um, certain sort of forms of behavior of pers- giving perspective and compassion and caring, um, and that can be filled by by anyone willing to to, to provide those um, so those behaviors. So it's like being a grandma isn't a destination; you never arrive at it. It's more a way of being. That's right. Mm-hmm. What are some other what are some other examples? like the way that that I've always had values set up for me is that values are a direction that you move in not some state that you arrive at. So so for example, graduating from college is a is a goal but that's not a value. Maybe the value is to be a thoughtful educated person. Is that mm. Yep, that I think if, if, if there's a very cute if you've seen Ellen Bates uh, uh, animations if you if you go on online and google him it's a lot of cute for, for, about kids you know fulfilling criteria to get to the next step and the next step and then you know and they're being goaded all the time okay if you just give up and sacrifice and get you get to the next step your reward is coming your reward is coming and then the person goes you know through high school and through college and where's my reward is coming and then all of a sudden at 45 you discover there is no reward. You know, you were fooled. You, the, the, the point of living was to sing and dance and enjoy life, not to fulfill all these criteria. And, and, and I think that if, um, you know, we're brought up in a society of goals, and goals is a, you know, is a, maybe be a, is a point on the direction. But well, if we're very steered on outcome, we don't see the process. And I think mm-hmm. that's the... That's something we're not taught. Like Jen says, we're, we're in a society that doesn't teach us. Mm-hmm. 
I think I think a nice one, and it's very simple, and one that's in actually one of the first act books. I think is the idea of skiing. You know, John, you're in Utah, and I'm in Reno, and there's a lot of skiers around. Um, I, I actually, there's probably a lot of skiing in Sweden too, right? <laughs> yeah. Are you? Yeah. Well, you know, this idea of skiing. It's not the point of skiing is not to get to the bottom of the hill. Like there's no like prize at the bottom of the hill. The point of skiing is to actually ski, to like to be on the mountain. That is the point of skiing. No skier will tell you I wanted to get to the bottom 50 times. It's like they wanted to be on the slopes 50 times during the yeah. day. Doesn't the you book know? even doesn't the book even have like a helicopter come and take you to the bottom right. and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's a little metaphor, but I, I think it's really apt is this idea that it's about the process. It's not about the outcome. Sure, outcomes are important. You know, John, you and I are in grad school. Joanne, you 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 went to grad school. You're a professor now. There are outcomes that are important. Yeah. But they're just not the whole story. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like getting to the bottom matters because you can't go again if you don't get to the bottom. But it's not the whole point. Mm-hmm. The, the point is sort of to, to show up to the present moment, moment to moment unfolding of the thing we care about, of the things we care about, of, of the doing, the being that we care about. Yeah. And that, that's what makes a big difference in compared to classical behavior therapy where we were very goal-oriented. Values gives you immediate, immediate value. So the 180 degrees north value can immediately be in. I think, Jen, you showed me um, when I was in your office, you know, how, what, what movement could you show me right here and now that would be in your value direction? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I, I think it was just the posture, right? The the opening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you said yeah. yes. Tell that about how you you know how you could posture yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that with clients. Um, you know, this idea like sometimes people sometimes words work for people. You know, they really like the skiing metaphor and they get it and it clicks. But then sometimes there's this non-physical. I mean, excuse me, this non-verbal. Um, a way of learning that can be really helpful to discriminate, you know, when you're living for a value versus living for something else, whether that's, you know, moving away from something or whatever. Um, and, you know, just asking people like, what is it, what can you show me in terms of a body posture of what it feels like to live consistent with the things you care about? And nine times out of 10, people sort of sit up in their chairs, they sort of open up their body posture physically and, you know, when you ask, okay, so what is it like to live for something else, like to avoid feeling bad or to please someone else? It's usually sort of crunched up, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of folded in within yourself. And the thing that's really interesting about the the posture piece is when people are open and you sort of imagine like sort of putting your arms out to your sides and sort of sticking your chest out and really sort of taking up space, mm-hmm. you're taking up more space, which means there's more of you in the world, Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is sort of both uh, rewarding and sometimes vulnerable because then you can you're opening yourself up to being hurt more, as well as opening up to possibility of of maybe good things happening. But you can't control that. Um, so it's like, can you be willing to be out there because you care about that, even if it means that you're vulnerable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. <clears throat> So we've let's see. So we've talked a little bit about what what values are. We've talked a bit about how to help clients start to think about the difference between values uh, and and other types of things or behaviors or attitudes. We've talked uh, um, about uh, other aspects. I'm I'm curious uh, whether clients ever get stuck. Um, 
So, you know, in, in the, in the values exercises that I've learned, there's kind of this worksheet where it talks about physical health, social relationships, uh, you know, academic or learning things. Um, you know, it, it kind of lists these categories and you kind of give the client that worksheet and they go home and they think about maybe, um, how important each of these buckets are. Uh, sometimes the worksheets have them rank how important these things are. And then sometimes it asks them to do kind of a self-evaluation of, of uh, what, what behaviors or actions or goals might, might fit well within that category as a way to start moving towards the values. And I know that starts getting into the committed action piece. But as clients are starting to try and get in touch with their own values, um, do they ever get stuck and are there ever um, ways that we can help them get unstuck? So what are the common ways that a client might struggle to really figure out what their values are? Do you guys have any um, experience or thoughts on that? That process of having the client figure out their values? I think that the most common way that people get stuck is that they are wondering what you think. They're wondering, you know, the... Of um, uh, how can I read this person? What does she want to hear here? <laughs> what? And mm. and I think this is. I try to teach students to listen to the tone of voice. Um, you know, well, Chris, we're on the line often, and you are also looking at their body. And like you were saying, Jen, Jen just now about posture. Like, um, if you you can watch people, I often I'm not I'm not trying to speak badly of politicians, but if you listen to a politician. You know, if you to the tone of voice, you can often hear. You know, we often shut off our ears to politicians and it's or salesmen, and it's often because we hear this is yeah. a rehearsed speech. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and if you hear that that tone of voice, uh, you can hear that's probably not not out of value. It's uh, this is probably they're saying what they think you want to hear, and, or what and others maybe they think what others maybe want to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. I think. So, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say, I think, you know, a place where clients get stuck is also a similar place where I think some therapists can get stuck. Um, you know, this idea of listening um, is sort of a solution to the problem of, um, you know, coming in as therapists and either A, sort of e- uh, sliding into the place by accident of, of telling clients what they should care about. I don't, mm-hmm. think, I don't think any therapist would really want to come from a place of saying, I should tell my clients what to care about. But I think it can be easy to get into that place um, because it's like we're trying to sort of help them live more meaningful lives. And so it's easy to go there or, or to not want to, to be able to provide any kind of feedback about what you hear and what they say because mm-hmm. you're afraid that you're, as a therapist, trying to, you're, you're now shaping what they care about. Yeah. in a way that maybe they wouldn't have come to on their own. So I like that idea of listening, Joanne, as a way to mm-hmm. say, maybe the client is communicating some information here that, that can help you help them discriminate what's a value and what's not. That's right. You can make a behavior analysis there and see that, okay, so when I ask you this question, you're looking for what I, what I want to hear. Is that something that you do? So, And um, I think for many people it's um, – uh, you know, it's just really difficult because it hurts to go in that place. So I think the, the stuckness could be that uh, it's just so much easier to talk about, you know, symptom reduction than it is to talk about actually what I want because it's painful. Mm-hmm. And, I can imagine yeah. people being scared that, that 
that they're scared to want because if they want and then it doesn't come through, they're going to just be more sad and disappointed than if they were just turned off. That is very common. I also had a client once say to me, um, she knew a lot of what she cared about, but she was sort of shocked when she realized um, that living her values was was not going to be easy all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's this idea in our culture that once we care about something that like being in a relationship or, um, you know, getting into an exercise program or, you know, going to school should be easy because we care about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. because if it matters, we should just do it and it should be fine. There should be no difficulty right. or pain that comes up with that. And And when she like actually came into to session one day and was like, you know, I spent some time with my family and it kind of sucked. Like my yeah. son was all mad at me and I didn't know what to do. And like, I just wanted to play this board game because I was like caring about being with my family. And, and she was like, why isn't this easy? I care about it. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is the difficulty. It's yeah. not always easy. So there's that piece too, that it should be easy. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. I think the truth is the opposite is, um, you know, like a sports person, the closer they get to where they want to go, the, the more likely the failure is. And I think that the closer you get to the values, the scarier it gets. It's a pretty good yeah. sign when you can have a lot of yeah. anxiety. Well, that's a great way to transform that function of that fear is that, you know, the more you have to lose, the more scary that is. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's a, I think, uh, I don't know if Steve did this or someone else in, in, in one of the supervision teams I've sat on this idea of, of as soon as you um, like think about the thing you care about um, in your life, the most, maybe a person or, or an activity and write that on one side of an index card and then flip it over and sort of what's your fear there. Yeah. Mm. Like losing that. Like, so for example, if I put my husband on there, like, like as soon as you get married, it's like, wow, this person could die. And I can yeah. be loved. like, yeah. that's really scary. Like, as soon as I build a relationship and continue to, to get closer and closer and closer with him, yeah. like, now he's, it's going to hurt even more if I were to yeah. lose him. Kids, kids, children can bring that as well, having children. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And some people yeah. would even say, like, I don't want to have kids because I'm afraid. One might die. That, that they might die or it's just too painful for me. People will say that. And so what you can do clinically is take that card and say, would you be, are you willing to throw away this other side of, of this area of your life that's important to you, of being a parent or, or caring for another person or being, being a loving partner in order to throw away this fear that th- you could lose them? Because yeah. I don't know how to throw away just the fear part without throwing away that activity, that area yeah. altogether. Yeah, just to add to what you're saying, Jen, I mean, a, a value is always a verb. It's never an outcome. And I think this, um, if you think about, you know, impermanence, it, w- what I often hear is people, they say, I value, I want to hold on to the past. Like, for example, in, in rehabilitation, I want to have the body I had, you know, 10 years ago mm-hmm. when before this happened. And, um, you know, be, and, and if you look at, you know, what Darwin talks about, he talks about the intelligence is about ad- adaptability. Uh, to change to the change our changing context so the verb somehow has to be constant in this changing context rather than trying to um uh, fixate your value on a particular form like you know that you know your relationship 
is going to change. Mm-hmm. And if you if if we try to, for example, hold on to a certain form of it, now it feels really good. I want it to be like this forever and ever and ever. Then then of course it increases the the fear of you know of of change because the change threatens my you know this particular form. Mm-hmm. But the if the value can be brought up higher, for example, for the guy who's lost his legs or is paraplegic. Um, the value is can still be I want to you know I want to keep my movement I want to keep my health um, but I can't I can't do what I did 10 years ago mm-hmm. so it's it's adapting to you know the natural loss of function and, and the change of life how do I keep my values consistent so that I can be flexible and continue to act in my value direction even though the the context changes all the time Mm-hmm. I like that. That it's a verb, so it's it's valuing, <laughs> it's loving, it's being. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not um, accomplishing something like, uh, like uh, when do you stop being a loving person? Like y- you you uh, make a commitment to someone and now you're done being loving. <laughs> no, loving is an evolving thing, or or um, being uh, being a certain way is an evolving thing. I love that. I think that's a really neat way of thinking about it. You know, Jen, it's often confu- people get confused about um, about exactly that. That they think that a value is a feeling, and I think that's really important. They take up like feelings come and go all the time, so we we can't base our our uh, behavior on feelings. So it's the verb part is that I I can act in a loving way even if I don't feel loving. Mm. And you know when people get married, often this you know you make a commitment to love love you. I mean that, that it doesn't you can't make a commitment on something you have no control over. You, I have no control over my feelings, but I have a control over my behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think confuses people thinking that value means that you know you feel good <laughs> all the like time. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not easy. You don't always feel good. Feelings sort of come and go. You know, it's it's kind of interesting as a little exercise, you know, just if you ever ask a client to sort of track the number of feelings they've had in a day or even just in since they walked into the therapy room, you can often yeah. get that idea like, oh, look at that. Like you felt maybe a little nervous and you felt excited, then you felt sad, then you felt tired, then you felt, you know, like, wow, look at that. There's a lot of different feelings that come up in just the five minutes you've been here. How can it be that that, that feeling will always be there? Yeah. So so I have two two quick questions about <clears throat> values as, as I've been experiencing them. I, I Because I, I live in Utah, um, I work with often heavily religious populations. And I have two questions. The first is, are there any tips or tricks to helping people, I don't want to say disentangle from their the values they inherited through their family and their religion, but to be honest, if you're raised for 20, 30 years, these are your values, these are your values, these are your values, um, and you, you take your religious faith really seriously, <clears throat> I imagine that for some, it's going to be really hard to even get to the place where they think that they're allowed to have personal, kind of uh, personally driven values instead of community driven values. I can imagine some cultures as well. Let's just say, uh, you know, in, in in let's just say some of the Latin American cultures that I'm familiar with, it's not about what's important to you necessarily. It's about the family as a functional unit, and it, it might even be viewed in some cultures where individual values. Are, are kind of out of place. Uh, is that something you guys have seen? 
And and if so, how do you help? And this is my first part question. How do you help people disentangle um, from from some of those more strongly, uh, you know, established values that they inherit? Joanne, I'd like you to start with that one. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I mean, there are if if you talk about religion as as a certain set of rules. I mean, rules are, some rules are helpful, some other rules are not helpful, but all rules take you away from the natural contingencies. So if, if you want um, to... What do you mean actually, by that? What do you mean by that? For someone who doesn't know well, behaviorism. Like well, if you, if you want, if you tell a child to put, you know, put his jacket on before they go out, um, and they may do that because of the rule, they never really experience maybe why they should put the jacket on. I mean, they don't, the natural contingency would be that it's cold out and the, the jacket is, helps them keep warm. And so, so a lot of the rules we make um, can be helpful. But if you have, for example, moral rules of, of a religion, um, I mean, most of world's religions have quite similar rules, but um, but actually, uh, and, and when I was in Sierra Leone, I really saw both the Muslim and Catholic religion was very helpful in this chaos um, to help people and help these uh, young people you know, get their lives in order. So, but but certainly it it um, it brings us away from actually uh, figuring out for ourselves. Like, okay, for example, what you talked about with the collective. Um, I mean, here in Sweden. Uh, it's also quite collective, and uh, all, all, it's quite frowned on uh, egoism or doing things for yourself. And there is a collective way of thinking, but but I think that people still, um, when when they allow themselves to really feel uh, what would be good for me here, is also good for the collective. And I think that it's um, getting into touch with those natural contingencies um, that that regardless of the rules that I live in, I mean, we live in a world of rules, of laws, but um, when, when, if rule follow, rule governed behavior is, is um, uh, not as, you know, desirable or stable as actually behavior that's contingency driven. So that when in I other actually- words, like actually bumping into like why you would do something like it's cold outside, like that would be a, a sort of a natural contingency, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. also, for example, say getting married. I mean, if 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 you have um, if, if you have a, a law of, you know, if you're unfaithful to your husband, you know, you know, something or other can happen. But of course, it's, you know, we, you would probably much more value that a person chooses to be faithful rather than I have to be faithful because of that, because of that rule. Because often we're, we're quite childish in these rules. We don't like rules. We don't like people deciding over us. So if we, for example, in obesity, um, diets and restrictions leads to binge eating because we don't like rules. We don't like somebody telling us what to do. Right. Without sort of contacting like why you might do it. So, so just to build on that, Joanne, is it okay if I yeah. cut in? Um, you know, just to build on that, John, you know, it's not about self-promotion above the group or above someone else. It's more like, um, you know, like if, if, yeah, it might be useful for a small child to, to put on the coat because mommy says, but eventually you do want, um, you do want people to be able to abstract sort of why that rule might maintain, like to be able to say, oh yeah, it's kind of cold outside. You know, I should put on a jacket because now they don't need someone to, to tell them the rule. They're able to, to, 
make their behavior fit the environment better because they've they've learned that contingency. Oh, it's cold out. I remember vividly actually that exact experience as a child. Like my mom used to tell me to wear a hat and gloves and I always refused because I just didn't think they looked cool. And then I hit like 14 years old and I realized, oh my God, it's really cold at 5.45 a.m. in Massachusetts in January. Like, <laughs> and I really want to wear a hat because I'm cold. And darn it, my mom told me I should. You know, um, but now I, I'm much more better at you know looking to the to the temperature to decide what to wear. Um, so rules are useful because they can save us from that pain in the short term. But in the long term, it's kind of useful to learn sort of what that why that might matter. So I would say the same is true for religious or, or family values or community values. You know, they can be shortcuts to help sort of people stay in line. You know, it's a, so, it's a way of social control to have a set of rules. But if people are saying, I really care about this community, my church community is really important to me, or my family community is really important to me. Again, it's just about what, what is meaningful to you inside that? What's meaningful to you inside fidelity? What's Good. meaningful to you in, inside sharing with the community? What's meaningful to you inside sacrificing your, your personal fulfillment for the larger goal. So it doesn't have to be kind of uh, self-interest with abandon. Someone Correct. can someone can re-engage their religious faith tradition or their or their social community in a way that's maybe more meaningful and, and vibrant for them because it's coming from a place of what they really truly value and care about versus being rule governed and doing things because you're told. Is that kind of what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think um, you know you can look to almost any religion, and and when people are really flexible with that, they might come back to a place of these these rules may be blind following of them is not what I find vital, but actually choosing them because mm-hmm. I find meaning in them, because I find meaning in fidelity or sharing with the community or being a caregiver, even if you know I had the dream of going to whatever, like I've chosen to be with my family because that's important, can, can come back to that place. Um, there's room to explore that though. And um, you know, so it's not about being selfish, but rather looking for the reinforcing qualities of doing that for yourself. Mm. Another aspect, I think, Jen, that we took up in the book is about, you know, when we talked about arbitrary reinforcement versus what we called natural reinforcement. Mm-hmm. You, remember, we talked about, that, um, for example, you might use grades to help, you know, kids do some to follow up, you know, to work harder. And, and, and what we've seen from different, some different research, if you remember, the research was done in California with um, rewarding children for painting. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it showed that those kids painted less than those in the long run than the, than the kids who didn't get because wow. painting has an intrinsic I mean there's something there's something a joy in painting a joy in doing music but if you go in between the child and the reinforcement and give them a reinforcement for example token economy or the risk is that they don't come into contact and I actually have a personal experience of this with my own children um, they don't they don't get into contact with the actual joy or the reinforcement of that Thing. I, for example, I reinforced my children to play violin, and they said as an adult that I ruined their music interest. Because <laughs> they did it for the reinforcement and not because they got, it, they got it into contact with the music. So I think that that's why I think values can be very important to, to help people 
actually get into contact with the meaning of of the thing rather than you know because somebody else wants you to do it the meaning and the experience right the experience yeah that there's actually i mean human beings throughout history have you know loved to sing and dance but if you know if you go in between them and say i expect you to do that you're gonna you know people are going to be relating to the rule rather than seeing the whole meaning to of it Mm -hmm. okay that makes sense let me ask the second part of the question if you guys don't mind um i i had a therapist once challenge me about act and say one of the biggest uh pitfalls he's seen with act and again this is uh working with a highly religious population is that sometimes people can have what he liked to call toxic values and so I'll just I'll give you an example, and we can maybe hopefully explore this example and then and then broaden it to to kind of the bigger picture. But let's just say that let's just say there's a, this is something that I've seen a little bit. Let's say that there's a teenager, and I'm going to be a little bit candid, a little bit explicit, but we're we're psychologists here. We're dealing with mental health. I hope that's okay. Let's say there's a teenager who's taught that masturbation is evil by his religion, and mm-hmm. he believes his religion. And he believes that he must not masturbate. But we also know that probably a large percentage of young teenage boys probably engage in masturbation and, and maybe some, you know, maybe women too. Well, let's not get into that. But let's just say in this boy's case, he gets in this cycle of trying his hardest not to do that, but he does it. And this sort of abstinence, violation, shame effect and cycle starts and and I don't know what leads to what, but let's just say that in some way that spirals him into almost sort of OCD-like scrupulosity behavior where he's holding his hands above his shoulders so that he doesn't put his hands anywhere near himself, where he won't hug his own mother because he's worried it might generate a thought. You could, I've seen sort of this chain of behavior where some type of rule that that is sort of inflexible, not flexible within their religious tradition, at least the way that someone interprets their religious tradition, um, leads to some really toxic and painful um, side effects for them. And so, but you you know, I also had the same therapist tell me never get between a person and their God. And so, what do you do if their value? And this is just one example. But what do you do if their values actually are toxic for them? How do you do? How do you disentangle that? Well, I don't think that would be called a value. I mean, would you meaning the value would be? Uh, let's say the that. value is obedience, obedience to your religious leaders, because it, it'll help you go to heaven, and because you know this is this is in my experience one of the prime motivations of devout religiosity it's you want to get to heaven you want to um have a you know you want to be rewarded you don't want to be punished you want to be with god and so you you want to be obedient because obedience is what leads you to heaven and and sin is what takes you away and that i think for many people that all gets wrapped up as a value which is i want to live a christ-like life or i want to live a a worthy a noble and a spiritual life but the way that that ends up being uh, playing out is through obedience to, to authority. And it would certainly be a tricky thing to try and convince them that they don't need to be obedient to their authority, their religious authority. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Is this too complex for us to tackle? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But I think just generally, um, as as Jen was saying, if you have a set of rules rather than, you know, the the actual natural contingency, if you're following the rules, um, the problem is, you know, our brain doesn't do well with rules. It's like it doesn't understand no. So if you say, and this is what we, you, you can see this very clearly in the obesity research, is if um, if you say, you know, for example, uh, no ice cream, you know, I'm going to follow this diet and, and I'm going to follow it, you know, literally. Um, what happens is it's like your brain sits and is taking notes, you know, to all the time you sacrificed yourself and not, you know, not eating that ice cream. And then what we see is, you know, f- f- um, s- sooner or later, um, it's, it's like the brain wants compensation for all those times you sacrificed yourself. And then you see this overboard going from restrictive eating to binge eating on whatever thing you were sacrificing. And it's, it's like you, we can't control our behavior. I mean, the, the rules is we often start acting uh, uh, inter- towards the rules rather than tr- towards, you know, what I want to be about. For example, my, my son one of my sons, I have twin boys, and one of them was a, a punk. And and uh, he was an anti-racist, which, you know, I'm glad he was an anti-racist. But this this anti, you know, actually turns out to be the same thing as racism, right? I mean, it's, it's um, you know, when you are anti any group, that's racism. Right. And, and so, it's, so when you start making rules, it's like you start acting... You know the the it's the rules are coming to to define you rather than uh, if if I choose not to eat ice cream it should it should be because I'm you know giving myself nutritious food but but it seems like when we restrict ourselves to rules then something happens and we just break those rules we we just we don't want to be rule governed. We want to be contingency governed. We, we want to figure things out for ourselves and experiment like Al- Albert Einstein talks about. Um, we need, we need experimentation to know what we, you know, what we like or don't like, what we value. We, if we're just given a set of rules, then we never do that experimentation. So I'm sold. I'm sold on the science of that and on the logic of it. I, and so I'm just so Jen. I'll throw this to you to ask, answer the second part of the question. So, so what if they say, uh, you know, sorry, but but I must obey what my what my faith tradition or what my parents or whatever, what my culture. I can't go against that, even if you tell me it's not good to be rule governed. These are these are things that that my values tell me I must obey. I need right. you to help me not be gay. I need well, you to help think, me not masturbate because sure. that's what my religious leaders tell me. Well, I think I think what one of the things you're tapping into clinically is um you know something that uh maybe we'll touch on when we when we talk about these other processes um that will will be will be touched on there but um you know it's it's sort of it sounds like inside this clinical example is that there's an expectation that this client should not have thoughts that are sexual, right? That, that like, as if that were a process that were able to be controlled or that they may, that they should not have feelings that are sexual that arise at random times during the day. It may be that they're natural, but that you should try and minimize them and, and beat them back. Okay. Well, I mean, I, and so I think 
clinically, whether or not I agree with the stance uh, that this person is taking, like, let's just say for for the short term, you know, just for the clinical example, you know, doing this work, do a lot more exploration on this. But um, if the client said, it's really not okay with me to behave in ways that are either, you know, say homosexual or masturbate, masturbatory or whatever, that's a behavior I do not want to get, get to do. End of story. That's not negotiable. Then I'd work with, well, what what are some of the things that are going to come up and how can you make space for them in a way that's workable for you? Like, is it workable to spend your day praying because you've had this thought or this feeling or this or this draw or this desire to do this behavior? Um, and if the behavior happens, um, you know, what's workable for you? Is it to do it and then move on or is it to... Um, ride through the urge to do it and and just sort of practice some acceptance that that might be present um you, you know and so whether or not i think it's you know a, a good idea for that person to abstain is is sort of irrelevant but if that's where they want to be then i would help i think um you know just sort of make space for the things that would show up inside there and help them contact you know what it is inside their religion that's meaningful like i i Obedience is a tough one. Um, obedience has smacks a lot of negative reinforcement. You know, like I'm doing this because I'm trying to avoid feeling bad for not doing it. Um, right. You know, uh, or for not living the way that I'm told I should. It's very pliant. It's very like I have to do this because other people have told me so. And it's very negatively reinforcing. But if you can get inside what is important to that person inside the religious community, maybe there's some more flexibility there. Um, maybe that's not what is being told to the person directly. Maybe there's more flexibility inside that. But even if there's not, you know, some people live inside really aversive um, settings, you know, like they can have, uh, you know, parents who are really overbearing and there's not a lot we can do as therapists to change that person's environment, particularly if they're a minor, <laughs> you know, if they're still a teenager and still still legally required to live there. Um, right. But I think there's room that for people to, to talk about flexibility inside how you respond to those sensations. And depending on the therapist, you know, maybe putting out there on the table that not everyone thinks that way and that it's up to that person to choose that set of beliefs that requires them to abstain from a particular behavior. Yeah. You know? I'll, I'll just add that, you know, I'm, my master's thesis is on scrupulosity, so I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. And there are a couple things that, that I've found to be helpful. One is just like you said with workability. Some of these people who get wrapped around uh, some of these issues about worthiness, um, they end up not praying, not studying their you know religious texts, not attending religious services because they have so much guilt and shame. And so workability is something that's 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 a really good approach for these types of people to say, hey, you're saying that you want to re- lead a religious life, that that le- leading a holy life is is a value of yours. But look at how the way functionally you're interacting with these rules and these fears. Look where they're leading you. You're not attending church. You're not praying. You're not engaging meaningfully. Um, and you could argue that in some ways the way that you're living out your religion might not even be the, the way that God would want. And so so the workability aspect I've found um, has 
has been quite helpful. I think that it's also important, just like you said, Jen, in some religious traditions, you can find lots of different opinions. You may find a verse in the scripture that says X, but you also may find a different verse in the scripture that says the opposite of X. And you may find religious leaders who give a more harsh interpretation, but you also might find religious leaders who perform who, who who provide a more liberal or loose interpretation and even if you get people to talk about what the norms are within their within their group you may be able to help people see that there are many different possible interpretations or ways that their religiosity can be laid out and if you combine more flexible interpretations with the workability you can sometimes get them to loosen up on the rigidity of what they think is their values and what they think is living a valued life and get them to believe that they could live a more valued life maybe by letting go of some of the rule-governed behavior and 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 moving towards some of the more values-based behavior. That's mm-hmm. That's been a bit of my experience. Yeah. I think there's one other thing that's related if we have time and that's, you know, when you said the word toxic value, um, I wasn't thinking more, I wasn't thinking, uh, you know, that it may be toxic for the individual in that way, but I had more had the thought of someone who maybe comes to therapy saying that they, they really value, um, hurting others yeah. or something along those lines. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. And something that, that society will say, well, there's right. actual laws that say that that's not okay. You know, for example, um, you know, just just trying to think of an example, um, say pedophilia or something like that. Uh, or racism, that, you yeah. Know, yeah. Or racism yeah. or, you know, you know uh, anything like that. So, so you've got these situations where society says these are not acceptable behaviors, but the person comes in saying that's a value. Um, yeah, Joanne, you- I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever had a client who's had um, come in sort of saying something that maybe society has said is, is really like illegal, <laughs> um, but then mm-hmm. that's something they care about. Has that how would you deal with that if that's ever happened? Well, I think that, you, for example, I've had, you know, 13-year-old girls who come in and, and who prostitute themselves. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that, uh, you know, they find, they, they find these guys, these older guys over the Internet, and they, they use um, sex to get alcohol, for example. And, and when I ask them about, you know, uh, so what is it in this that you, you know, what do you get out of this? And they, and they actually talk about values. this say well you know it's um i mean it's it can be better than nothing i mean it is i mean they talk about the sex the sexual part that it isn't just you know terrible that they, that it you know they feel that they're appreciated and it's so so i try to think of i mean and also if they're self cutters you know if you say when you use the word vitality before you know what do you get out of cutting yourself and they'll say well i it i, I feel like i'm really present when i when i cut myself and so i think that if you think of these values is that okay they're not different than mine or different than other people's but 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 you're going about it in a way that's harmful you know you, mm-hmm. you're, you're you cut yourself you're harming yourself when you prostitute you're harming yourself so could there could we look at other ways you know that's one perspective could we look at other ways where you could reach your values that wouldn't be harmful for you or for other people but it's mm-hmm. it's i think it's good not to judge them and say that's not a value it's just that you're going about it in a way that's that's really you know harmful. And, from, and if you think of from my therapeutic perspective, I see your value and I see where you're going, and I could see other ways you could go. Would you be willing to try another perspective and, and just see um, if you could reach that value in a in a way that's more healthy for you? Mm-hmm. Not that it's wrong, but um, there may be other ways to do that that would be 
could be more helpful. And less le- in terms of workability that are less likely to result in legal action or, yeah. or harm to others. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you don't challenge their values. You, you see if there's a way for them to, to live their values in a way that also isn't harmful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I think we should never challenge people's values. I think, you know, working in other countries, mostly, we, you know, we have language problems and I don't even know hardly what they say. You know, I don't know exactly, but I, I can see what they're, you know, when they talk about there's something important here. And I think uh, even if it sounds crazy, you know, it, I, if I just try to understand the, the meaning behind these words, I mean, they're just words. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, you know, I want to be some a guy in in the townships in Africa says, I want to be a policeman. Well, I might associate policemen with somebody who's trying to control other people's behavior. But if I really listen to the guy, he's talking about, you know, protecting the children in his township. And um, it ta- if I might, you know, have to listen a little more, you know, what is it? What does that mean? So I think we should never, you know, uh, judge to try to go beyond and figure out what is what is the meaning of this you know value right so if someone said you know i value hurting others we we would walk inside what is that what do you what do you mean by that what do you get inside that like and and yeah. it's probably not hurting it's probably more like that's a way to connect or a way to to feel alive or a way to feel something that's important yeah. but that the hurting is just yeah. sort of the the action they've taken to get there yeah, and hurting maybe because they're afraid. Let's say for a pedophile, you could be, uh, I mean, if, if I want to have sexual contact, but I'm afraid of somebody my own age because I'm afraid of, you know, I'd be rejected. So I take this, this mm-hmm. you know, this way that's, you know, hurting others and hurting myself and illegal. But um, it's, you know, because I fear of doing it. So, I mean, we, we want to increase people's behavior repertoire, not punish them. Mm-hmm. And could I, you know, could we, could I show you another way? And then you could see if this could be more helpful. Mm-hmm. You can you can always you know yeah. go back to the cutting yourself, but but there might be other ways that you could get what you wanted. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just want to add though, you know, even just listening here, that doesn't mean that that's an easy process for everyone. You know, um, that that might be difficult, and that you know, as therapists, it's probably better to refer if you get to a place where someone is really not willing to go for that other workable path or, or for so even sort of to embrace the idea of workability. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think to it? Yeah. I mean, there's some things like, um, for example, criminality. I mean, things that, I mean, it's pretty, it is t- much tougher to, to actually get a job. I mean, if, if a young prostitute can make a whole lot of money, um, uh, very quickly, I mean, to actually get a job and get minimal wage is much, much tougher. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's. Yeah. It, so, you're, so, you're, so you're operating again. I, I guess there's a lot of competing contingencies inside some yeah. of this stuff. So it's not, don't want to make it sound easy, but it, it yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think uh, we've had a really good conversation about values. I've learned a ton. Personally, what, 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 um, Jennifer, what are some of the other things you think we might want to, uh, or, or Joanne, what are some of the things you, you guys want to cover before we kind of wrap up any other final thoughts or, or questions? Joanne? Um, <laughs> no, it's, I, I think that if, if you're interested in values, I think should get a copy of our book. Um, 
the art and science of valuing and psychotherapy, um, uh, Jen and I, together with the RFT researcher and another clinician, um, have written this. I think that we we really really tried to delve into these issues. And what do you think, Jen? I think the book is really helpful. I hope so. I mean, we we wrote it for the purpose of of walking through some of these difficulties that we've talked about today in in a lot of detail with a lot of clinical examples, linking it up to RFT and the research base wherever wherever we could. Um, so it might be a place to start. And there's a lot of other great books out there with examples for how to do values work. And there's a lot of different perspectives on how to do values work. Um, and I think Joanne provides a really nice one that's um, uh, very values focused um, and that there are a lot of other ways to, to bring values into the work um, at, at all different levels. So I, I'd encourage people to, to take a look at some other, other books out there and other protocols to sort of see what speaks to them. Um, but not mm-hmm. to be afraid to use it, you know, early on in therapy as, you know, what, what is, what is struggling with this problem cost you, you know, how, how, what would you get if you, if your problem were solved around your, your symptoms, um, you know, that those are ways to bring in values early and there's lots of ways to do it, um, that people could find, you know, their own voice in doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So at a minimum, we want to refer people again to the book, The Art and Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, um, helping clients discover, explore, and commit to valued action using acceptance and commitment therapy. Now, that's a, that's for therapists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys know if there are any books on values for clients yet? For for Do we know? Um. I, I don't think there's any that are specifically on values for clients, um, although, um, Joanne, do you know of any that are specifically on values? No, no. Maybe that's an there's, invitation to our listening audience yeah, for, a book, yeah. for a book idea. I think there's one. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, you guys talk a little more. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> there's a new book, I think, by uh, John Forsyth. And uh, uh-huh. Georg Eifert, do you know which one I'm talking about, Joanne? No. Okay. That's all right. Um, okay. So, and Jen, you can look that up if you yeah. want. So, um, <clears throat> all right, Joanne. So, any, maybe any final thoughts on kind of just summing up the importance of value, values and, and their role within ACT and... Um, and kind of a motivation for us to, to consider it uh, as an important, crucial part of ACT. Do you, do you mind giving us just a summary? Uh, well, I think for as for therapists, especially um, um, as compared to, you know, sitting listening to people's stories and how do you fix me, I think for your own sake as a therapist, I think values can help you connect to uh, this human being. I think you can, you know, you can get the meaning back of being a therapist again. So I think it's, it's um, you know, connecting to your own values and connecting to the patient over values which you can do in, you know, multicultural environments, you know, people with language difficulties. I think values goes beyond language. And so I think um, for your own sake, uh, working with values is just um, oh, feels very, very meaningful. And, um, and then to, and the inspiration of seeing patients connect with their values is, is just so inspiring um, as compared to, 
you know, fixing, fixing things. So um, I just really would recommend working with values as a, as a way to um, yeah, inspire yourself and finding your own meaning with, with your work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, coming from a values perspective can be really rewarding for therapists too, you know, that it helps us, you know, in doing values work to, to sort of turn the lens around to us as therapists to say, what do I care about in being a therapist? You know, what do I care about in, in doing this work and helping people um, connect with what matters and how can I connect with what matters in this work um, as a nice way of, of thinking about continuing the work. Yeah. And I found that book. Oh. Um, there's, I believe it's a self-help book. It looks like it is. It's called Your Life on Purpose, How mm-hmm. to Find What Matters and Create the Life You Want. Ah. And the authors are Matt McKay, uh, John Forsyth, and Georg Eifert. So the first author is McKay, M-C-K-A-Y. Um, so that one might be a good one to, to recommend to clients to read on their own or to use as um, additional examples for working with clients. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Well, we'll try and get links to all the the books we mentioned up on the up on the podcast page. Um, I guess I guess we should try and and get the uh, the website address right. Should we try again? <laughs> the uh, the website is contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. Is that right, Jen? Yep. All right. Um, that's where you guys can find the podcast. Those of you who are listening through some other type of link, I also want to refer you to, uh, Dr. Dahl or Joanne's website. She has a, a very good website, joannedahl.com. That's J-O-A-N-N-E-D-A-H-L.com. And you can learn more about Joanne and see her books and her, her Vita and uh, a nice image gallery. It's a very nice website. So, so check that out. Um, and Joanne, I just want to thank you so much for coming on uh, Acting Context Podcast and talking to us about values. We've really, really enjoyed your time. Well, you're welcome, John and Jennifer. That's um, it's nice to be able to go over from Sweden to to the West in the United States. And yeah, it's been great speaking with you today, Joanne. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right, and um, and those of you listeners will be continuing uh, with, with more episodes to come in future weeks, so please uh, stay tuned, join us again, and please tell a friend about Act in Context Podcast. You can blog about it, you can Facebook about it, but let people know, and please, uh, again, point them up to um, contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys all again soon. The Act in Context podcast is a production of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Please check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. Music was brought to you by Armory.